Good morning. I switched it up. They make fun of me for saying all right every time. So I said good morning instead. But that's what I used to say, so I hadn't got anywhere. Let's, let's try both ways. All right. Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. We have a very interesting topic this morning, and I hope we can get a little historical and maybe just a little bit nerdy. Not, I mean, we have higher levels of nerdy than what we'll do today, but today there's going to be a little bit of that, so just fair warning. At a time, we might talk about Greek words, that kind of thing, um, some. So just brace yourself, be prepared. As you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, let's remind ourselves about a few things. Uh, being 2 Corinthians, it implies that there is a 1 Corinthians, very good. So there's some historical context going on. It's a letter. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to a church that's at Corinth, which is why we call it Corinthians. It's to that church. And what we have in 2 Corinthians is actually the fourth letter. So Paul wrote a letter, and then we have 1 Corinthians, then he wrote another letter, then we have 2 Corinthians. But technically, this is the fourth letter he wrote. And you may remember from last week, the other times we've talked about this, this is after a very severe controversy between Paul and the church at Corinth. So bad that he showed up in person to try to make, make amends to the scenario that was getting out of hand, and they publicly and corporately rejected him, and he left with a stell between his legs. In defeat, he left Corinth and went away. Then finally some interchanges happen. He writes a severe letter. They eventually do repent. He gets word of their repentance through Titus, and he writes this letter. He hasn't seen them yet since this happened, but he knows that they've turned, that they've repented, so he writes this letter on his way. So common theme in 2 Corinthians is dealing with pain dealing with suffering, uh, particularly like that emotional pain that comes with rejection, with conflict in relationships. We see that commonly pop up in Ephesians. We see a lot of emphasis on the comforting work of God. In fact, if you remember last week's sermon, Paul used the word comfort like 42 times in one phrase. It just comforting, comfort. It just kept going over and over and over and over again. We talked about God being the God of comfort. And now with that in mind, we're going to dive into a very interesting topic. In verse 8. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to pick up in verse 8, and I want to pose a question that is commonly posed, and I just want us to think about it corporately and then answer the question from the passage this morning. Will God put a burden on you greater than you can bear? I know I grew up in church with the, the answer to that being no, never. God would never put a burden on you greater than you can bear. And then, of course, I asked the question this morning, and I immediately got a lot of uh, um, yeses. He'll, he'll definitely put a burden on you greater than you can bear. Now, that's really a very nonspecific question if you think about it. Well, first, what do we mean by burden? Because there is a scripture in 1 Corinthians. We're in 2 Corinthians. So before Paul wrote this that we're going to read in just a moment, he did write 16 chapters to the church before. Now, he didn't write chapters, but we divided it into 16 chapters and it says very explicitly that, that no temptation is ever so great that you can't bear it. There's, there's no temptation so great that you cannot bear it. God provides a way of escape. So very explicitly, there's never a time where there's a temptation so great you can't bear it. But the word temptation and the word burden aren't necessarily the same thing, right? There's no time where you're tempted beyond what you can bear, but can you imagine being burdened beyond what 
you can bear. Now, you can imagine if you read the title of today's message, maybe this is finally, after eight years of Church of the Square, we have a Mother's Day message on Mother's Day. Burden beyond measure. Mother's Day message. Happy Mother's Day. Which, of course, concludes the Mother's Day portion of the sermon. So, as we dive into this, <laughs> you kind of know where we're going. Burden beyond measure. Burden can mean something much more dramatic and specific than just the idea of a temptation. All right, well, if we just start with parenthood in general, motherhood in particular, I know there are times that that burden can feel like it's beyond measure, but we can know, have you ever seen someone really struggling under the weight of their circumstances and you're thinking, that's really not that bad, like, burden can be relative? You know, at the moment, that seems unbelievably difficult. I remember having our first kid, when Abby was born, man, my world ended. It's like, Wow. So much burden from one child. And then three children later, you're like, eh. You know, that's the whole, you, you know the joke where your first kid eats dirt, you take him to the doctor. Second kid eats dirt, you wash their mouth out. Third kid eats dirt, you don't feed him supper. You know, it's like the, the relative experience of the burden changes. And so we can recognize that some things that feel like burden beyond measure really only feel like that because they're new burden. They're not really a burden beyond measure. But then I think there's some things that no matter who you are, you can step back, you can look at some scenarios in life and recognize that doesn't matter your position, doesn't matter the relative ease or burden of any given scenario, there are some things in life that are burdens beyond measure. I can't fathom the loss of a child. I can't imagine that burden. There's burdens that you, I know, have experienced in this room or either in your family or in your circle of friends, either or you yourself have experienced burdens that are so powerful some people collapse under them have you ever seen someone completely collapse under the weight of a burden and their life falls to pieces they fall to pieces life ends maybe for them even if not literally metaphorically it's over or maybe you've experienced a burden that was so heavy that you broke under the weight and there is a permanent change in who you are you know the difference between something that's elastic and plastic. Like if you take a paper clip and you, you bend it a little bit and then you let go, it'll pop back in place. You put a little bit of burden on it. It just stores that energy. That's elasticity. You let go, it pops back up. But if you keep bending it, what happens to the paper clip? It enters the plastic phase, which where it actually conforms and never pops back to the original place anymore. Well, we all know that there's burdens that feel like that, isn't there? They're You've not just been stretched, and when it's over, you pop back into place. You've been stretched in such a way that it doesn't seem like life will ever be the same. In fact, maybe it will never be the same. So when we think about this question of, will God burden you beyond what you can bear? I think in spite of whatever our religious background was, I think we know, I think we know the answer to that question. We see people get burdened all the time, that's seemingly, from any perspective, beyond what they can bear. So let's just see how Paul is dealing with this exact question um, here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. He says, for we do not want you to be ignorant. And that's just a fancy way of saying, let me remind you. Let me bring to light um, what happened to us, um, brothers, of the affliction... We experienced in Asia. Now, when we say Asia, we mean a different part of the world than Paul means. Paul means what we would call in modern times Turkey. 
And so if you look, think on a map, you see the Mediterranean, uh, not ocean, sea, whatever that's called. Um, I'm going to try to do this for you. Turkey would be, oh, this is confusing backwards. I think over here, which is kind of up and over to the Mediterranean Sea relative to Palestine. Am I doing that right? This feels, mirror image is hard. So here's Palestine. Asia for him is that whole piece here. And then you have Europe over here. Y'all with me on the the basic setup? So when we read through um, Acts, we see that much of Paul's ministry is happening in Asia, or we might call it Asia Minor. It's like a little piece of Asia. Of course, Asia is this huge continent. Well, sorry, this way from your perspective. It's a huge continent to them, but he's thinking of Asia where Ephesus is. Ephesus, of course, would be the main Roman province. We could call it maybe in our lingo the capital city of Asia Minor at that time. So Paul has spent a lot of time in Ephesus. He spent a lot of time in Galatia. He spent a lot of time in this area that would be called Asia. So Paul, after saying all this about comfort and suffering, he wants them to know, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. So when he says Asia, why why say Asia as a big term and not just say Ephesus or Galatia? I don't know if you've ever had this experience. Um, Maybe a season of life was a burden for you. And then there was maybe a particular moment where you reached critical mass, where you broke, where you folded under pressure. And you, you know what that moment is, that time and place, that moment that it happened, but you know at the same time that it's, it's not a moment. And that was two years worth of stuff building up for you. And so you think back on that season of life culminating in a particular moment. I think that's what Paul is talking about here. He's looking back over a season, at least two, maybe three years worth of ministry as F, in Ephesus as his base, going out to these other cities around. All of this ministry concludes in this major moment of tribulation where he is utterly heartbroken. So see how he words this. So the, the tribulation we experienced in Asia, for we were utterly burdened beyond our strength. So did they get burdened beyond their ability? Literally, that's literally exactly what it says. They were burdened beyond their ability. So you know the Greek word, or sorry, the English word hyperbole. That's the word here for utterly beyond. Like we use that as like as a dramatic, so dramatic it's not even real. It's not quite how they're using it here. That's their word for it's beyond what you can explain. You ever experienced the pain that deep? You can't even tell someone how much that hurt. There's a, a sorrow in you that you cannot express. It's beyond words. That's how Paul is describing this moment in his life. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Now, in modern lingo, we might call that depression. We might call that anxiety. We might call that a a dark cloud. Did Paul ever worry? Did Paul ever have anxiety? Well, of course he did. We know that. He he says that much. Well, Jesus said, don't be anxious. Well, we can say that all day long, but Paul was anxious. He was worried. He actually commands us to be anxious a couple of times. I want you to see something, though. Paul never tells us exactly what the moment was. You know, the moment he broke, the moment he realized there may, be, there may be no hope for me here. That moment where you, if you ever wanted to give up, like you really just wanted to quit, I don't even necessarily mean suicide, but just the idea of I'm done. I'm going to fold 
under this pressure. There's a 10th Avenue North song that I love called Worn. And one of the phrases is, I'm, I'm tired before the day even begins. Have you been there? You know the moment I'm talking about, the, the weight on you. But there's that time that comes where you snap and it's too far. You've broken. And apart from something miraculous, you cannot be restored. That moment, we don't know exactly what it was. We have some ideas. But flip over towards the end of, of 2 Corinthians. I want you to see it's over in chapter 11. Um, I want to pick up in the middle of verse 21 and just give you an idea of what some of the things could be. And I have a feeling Paul's skipping the specific thing because he doesn't want to talk about it. But I want to try to paint a picture for what's going on with Paul. So this should be like two pages over, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to pick up in the middle of verse 21. He says, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. Now that's a pretty bold statement. Paul just said, yeah, I'm a better Christian than those guys. All right? <laughs> but that's what he says. I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. So what's he bragging of specifically? His suffering in all of these moments. But let's just walk through it real quickly. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Now that's a fascinating scenario. This happened at Lystra. And when you stone someone, you take a large rod and you crush their head in. Nobody survives that. So there's actually maybe, maybe God like supernaturally revived Paul after that. We don't know, but he was stoned presumably to death three times. I was shipwrecked. What's fascinating about that is we know of one shipwreck in the book of Acts, and that happens after he wrote this letter. So at least four times, Paul ends up being shipwrecked. It says, a night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger in the sea, danger from false brothers. That's one of his biggest areas of turmoil. And toil and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And in verse 28, it's kind of the, the climax. And apart from other things, so just that's the background. Let's talk about the foreground. That's just life. That's just food. That's just physical comforts. What about the, the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches? Can you imagine the weight Paul was bearing at that moment? That he knew that there was a direct connection between how hard he labored for the gospel and how well these churches did he? He's worried at several points in different gospels that maybe I labored in vain. There, maybe I didn't accomplish the task God gave me. He's got daily pressure, anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who has made the fall and I am not indignant? If a church is struggling, who took ownership over that? Paul did. If someone fell into sin, who took ownership over that? Paul did. If a church struggled, Paul took ownership over that. So in spite of all of these outside things, Paul is experiencing a personal struggle of pain and suffering, of responsibility for all of these people who keep 
messing it up. You ever feel like that? That's kind of parenthood sometimes, right? You know, or, or life in general. You feel responsible for these people who keep messing it all up. And then that's exactly the moment he finds out that things are terrible in Corinth. And he has to go to Corinth. And what would we say happened to him at that church? They publicly, this is while Paul is, he's at the level of freaking out. He's burdened already. He's suffering under the weight of ministry, under the pain of life, both internal circumstance and external circumstance. He finds out things aren't going well at Corinth. And he goes to Corinth. They publicly embarrass him, shame him by rejecting him for all to see, kick him out of town. He comes back to Asia and then see how, See how Luke words this. Go to Acts chapter 19. So it happened sometime during this. Acts 19, 21. It says, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem. So we know, and we'll, we, we could go into some historical stuff here as we synchronize 2 Corinthians and Acts, that this is before... Um, Paul writes 2 Corinthians. So he's writing that later, and this is after the controversy. So he's come back to Asia Minor. He's already sad this church has hated him. And now in verse 22, he sent them, that he's having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus. He himself stayed in Asia for a while. So here's Paul's scenario. He was already burdened seemingly beyond measure. Then he gets rejected by that church. Then he comes back to Asia and he senses this call to go back through Macedonia and then eventually back down to Greece where Corinth is. And he sends two of his most trusted people away. And so Paul just sent his inner circle away from him. And we know because of 2 Corinthians that he also sends Titus away from him. And now Paul is in Ephesus with his, none of his inner circle is with him. None of his closest friends are with him. And then verse 23 happens. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. That's Luke's way of saying crazy levels of persecution began at that moment. And Paul, I mean, he had the church at large, but he didn't have his closest friends. He didn't have the people who stuck with him usually day in and day out. He is essentially alone. And then this massive riot happens at the end of Acts chapter 19. And then we don't know how that ended exactly. It doesn't give much detail about what happened to Paul in that scenario. There's a lot of hypotheses that could be brought in, a lot of hypothetical scenarios, and, and we could make up scenarios. All we know is that something during this time was so bad to the Apostle Paul that he said he reached the point where he despaired of life, despaired of life itself. So back in 2 Corinthians, see what he says Furthermore, in verse 9, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. We just felt like that. You ever felt that moment in life where it's over? I'm done. I can't go a step further than here. It's not the first time this happened in Scripture. Moses had the same experience in Numbers chapter 11. He got sick and tired of God's people. He actually got sick and tired of both the people and how God was using him. And he starts complaining not about the people so much as he starts complaining to God about how God is dealing with the people. And Moses' job isn't done. God makes him keep going. We see 
Similar scenario with Elijah. You remember Elijah had this glorious moment on Mount Carmel where he calls down fire from heaven, destroys the altar, then he kills all the, the priests of Baal, and then a couple of days later he's camping out on a mountainside whining. It's like, I'm the only one left. There's no hope for me. Total, utter despair. The entire kingdom after one man. And he reaches that point of total despair. He actually quits in that moment. If you go back and read the passage, he's, I'm, I'm done. And God's answer to him is, all right, we'll go anoint Elisha to replace you. Right, he reached the point where he quit. This happens. I know it's happened to some of you. You've felt this. So the simple answer to the question is, does God let us experience burden beyond what we can bear? Resoundingly, yes. Absolutely. He does it all the time. God will certainly burden us beyond our ability. There's really no question about that. Guaranteed. This happens in Scripture. We see it happen in life all the time. But that's only the introduction. So let's continue the message. So the second half of verse 9. But... This was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. On God who what? Raises the dead. He'd reached the point where he despaired of life. What, did that, what was that designed to remind him of? That God raises the dead. Of course, he's talking about one particular moment in history. We could think about Jesus raising Lazarus. We could think about the little girl that Jesus raised. We could think about Elijah. We could think about other examples in the Bible of people raising from the dead. Maybe Paul could be thinking about raising Eutychus from the dead when he preached too long, but I think that's the future of this event, actually. So he's not thinking about that. What event is he thinking about? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is everything for Paul. We've already laid this framework out for Corinthians. Paul sees everything in light of living between two resurrections. The resurrection of Christ, where the victory over death has been made certain. It is starting to be applied to life now, but the perfect consummation of that victory, our resurrection from the dead, lies at the end, and we are in the middle. And Paul experienced this suffering so that he could experience the power of God's resurrection right now. So he delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. It reminded Paul of the type of God he served. So next point in the outline, God will never abandon his children to Sheol. Now that's an Old Testament expression. and It's a rich Old Testament expression. We don't think about it quite the same way in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, literally the word meant grave. God does not abandon his people in the grave. Now, that was a metaphor for them. To be in the grave was obviously to be dead, but it was to be in despair. It was to be forgotten. It was to be lost. It was to be non-existent. It was to be in pain and suffering and sorrow. Of course, that idea morphed into the New Testament concept. We have a fuller picture of that. We call it Gehenna or hell, but in the Old Testament, they just use that expression, Sheol, and commonly in the Old Testament, we get this perception that God does not leave his children there. David said he would not be abandoned to Sheol. His Holy One would not see corruption. Jesus embodied that literally by being raised from the dead. But other Psalms talk about how they will be redeemed from Sheol. God does not leave us in the grave. He does not leave us in sorrow, in suffering forever, ever. This is never God's long-term plan to leave you in pain, to leave you in suffering, 
to leave you in heartache. Now, life can be hard. God will put burdens on us that we cannot bear, but there is no burden that God cannot bear. That doesn't mean Paul didn't experience that breaking point. He still did. But at that breaking point, he broke towards God, not away from. So God never abandons his children to Sheol. Furthermore, third point in the outline here, God uses our greatest tribulations for the greatest revelation of his resurrection power. Do you see that? happening in Paul's life. He reached the bottom, but that was only to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That moment in Paul's life proved to Paul, demonstrated to Paul, just how gloriously powerful the God who raises the dead can be. Now we can make a misstep here. Because we could say, then we've set up a principle where even if you reach that breaking point, God always restores. Well, let's just think about Paul's life. He, he writes 2 Corinthians. Very shortly after writing this book, he actually goes to Corinth. In Corinth, he experiences a lot of persecution. He can't hang out there very long. While he's there, he writes a letter to Rome. And he says in Rome, I'm going to Jerusalem, but Rome, I'm coming to you. And he, he thinks it's going to go well, but he leaves Corinth. He Indeed, goes to Jerusalem, just like he said. He gets to Jerusalem. He brings this goodwill offering that's supposed to reconcile the Gentile and Jewish churches. And he gets there. He gives them the offering. And they're like, okay, Paul, thanks, but uh, we got to talk. Which immediately deflates him. I can only imagine spending years planning and collecting money for this goodwill offering that no one cares about. They end up getting angry at Paul. The Jewish people revolt against him. He ends up in prison has to appeal to Caesar as a Roman citizen to be even preserved his life through that whole ordeal, spends two years in prison locally just trying to work that out and eventually gets shipped off to Rome, has a shipwreck, almost dies, finally makes it to Rome in chains, and yet all these things got us preserved and preserved and preserved. Everything, no matter how bad it happens, Paul keeps getting this resurrection power experience in his life. But what happens to Paul while he's in prison in Rome? His head gets cut off. This was God's plan for Paul. Now I would say, you know, there's, apart from Jesus literally raising him from the dead, there's no coming back from head removed from body. This was still God's plan for Paul to experience that pain and that Suffering, last blank here, tribulations can and do end in physical death. People get cancer and still die, even when they love God. People still die in car crashes, even when they love God. People die on the mission field, even though they love God and God loves them. This happens, tribulations can and do end in physical death, but the hope of the resurrection always overcomes. See the end of verse 10 there, on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. He must also help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. The hope of the resurrection always overcomes. What am I getting at? Is that we have to have a perspective that is greater than this life. We're not talking about going to heaven when you die. It's not a really emphasized biblical concept. 
It's there. Only gets a handful of scriptures. The bigger biblical concept is what comes after that. The resurrection of the dead. Here, on this planet, doing this kind of life again without pain and suffering. That's the biblical hope. And if you set your hope on that eternal weight of glory, then you can endure with a different kind of strength anything that comes. You know, when you know something is going to end, it's easier to endure it. So for me, if I'm running a marathon, you know, I might not be able to in any sense fathom that that ends because there's so much burden, so much pain, so much weight flopping up and down, right? So there's a, our ability to see the end affects our ability to keep going, and that's true of anything. I can, you know, go a little longer without eating if I know I'm going to get something really good when I get there. I go to a good restaurant and the wait's a long time, I totally forgive them if the food's good. You know what I'm talking about? There's a direct connection between our ability to endure and how clearly we see and perceive the reward at the end. Here's Paul's hope. This is what Paul kept getting reinforced every time he reached that point where he thought he was going to break as God gave him a clearer picture of the glory that was to come. Now set your eyes, set your hope on the glory that is to come. There is nothing in this brief window of time that makes anything on the other side pale, it works in reverse. The glory will be so bright on the other side that no suffering, no matter how great here, will shine at all in comparison to that glory that's coming. Because this is the biblical hope. God will burden us, but He's doing it with purpose. He's doing it to use us, to grow us, to display His resurrection power in and through us, so that in the end, we can all with one voice say, it was worth it. His glory was worth it. That's the Christian hope, guys.